0: Welcome everyone. Welcome to the 23rd episode of the Atlas Society Asks. I'm Jennifer Andrew Grossman. You guys know me as Jag. Uh, Today we are joined by John Fund. We're going to have him for a half an hour for sure, but if you're extra nice to him, maybe he'll stay a little bit longer, Uh, but he's had a very busy night and he's having a very busy day. Um, Before I even get into introducing John, I wanna remind all of you veterans of Zoom, you know where to ask your questions. Same thing for all of those of you that are joining us from YouTube, just type your questions and comments into the chat stream. We'll get to as many of them as possible. So uh, John Fund has been a dear friend of mine for, 30 years, I hate to admit that. Um, He's been-
1: Kindergarten.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, And uh, and he's been a wonderful friend, I have to say, over the past few years uh, to the Atlas Society. Um, He's on the host committee of our gala and just has been a wonderful mentor and advisor to me uh, in terms of the work that we do here. Now, more importantly, um, John is an expert on elections. Uh, He's a political journalist. um, And it is just such an honor to have him with us at the Atlas Society the day after the most contentious uh, presidential election in our history. After 20 years um, at the Wall Street Journal, including uh, spending six years As a member of its editorial board, uh, John is currently the national affairs reporter for for National Review Online and is a senior editor at the American Spectator. John is the author of several books, uh, including Stealing Elections, How Voter Fraud Threatens Our Democracy, and co-author of Who's Counting, How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk. John, welcome again. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. I'm always pleased to address Atlas because uh, unlike a lot of people who are interested in the political process, uh, Atlas members tend to focus on policy and not personality. And believe me, that emphasis is needed now more than ever in our life.
0: Yes, and I would say um, even more than policy, we really focus on philosophy. We really focus on values, on what's right and wrong. And um, you, it's very important to have a philosophical framework uh, of what is fair and uh, a, a sense of life, a benevolent sense of life to help guide the context of political and policy decision-making. So John, what were your biggest surprises from last night?
1: Well, we're not over. Uh, the election isn't overtime, as I predicted. And that's part of the uh, consequence of having this bizarre shift in a few months from a traditional election day model to massive reliance on mail-in voting. And that carried with it all kinds of confusion, chaos and uh, crisis with it. And we're seeing some of that. Uh, That's why we're still counting votes in state after state. That's why ballots are still arriving in state after state. So uh, the confusion is because I think the left had an organized effort To try to uh, put its thumb on the scale by uh, convincing people they should get rid of their secret ballot, which is what a ballot cast at the polling place is all about, and convincing people to, um, you know, like a giant herd, uh, send in their ballots weeks early before even the debates were held. So I think you, what you can see in this election is the left's attempt to turn what is normally an individual decision, which is to go and vote for the candidate or policies of your choice on election day into a collective herd decision, which is we all just line up and we mail in our ballots and we don't ask any questions. And uh, that fits the leftist herd mentality. And I think that was their attempt in this election. Uh, As for the election itself, uh, I'm waiting for your questions and also the questions from your members. But I think this election can be viewed in a couple of levels. One was it was a referendum on Donald Trump. Uh, Trump has dominated our politics for the last five years to an extent rarely seen in American public life and love him or hate him or just be exasperated by him or fascinated by him. Uh, It it was a decision by many voters whether they wanted to continue this for another four years. On on a secondary level, it was a policy election, which is Donald Trump had a set of policies, uh, some of which had been led Uh, off track because of COVID, but he had a set of policies in foreign and domestic policy uh, that we was put before the American people, not as articulately or as well, or as consistently as I would have hoped or liked, but there was a policy election here. And lastly, I think there was a culture war election. One of the reasons why Joe Biden did not do as well as all the pollsters, uh, and we can talk about their failures uh, predicted and why the media was so wrong is, A lot of Americans really weren't so much shy voters as they were uh, shy dissenters in the culture war, they're tired of the cancel culture. Cato Institute has a survey out in which 77% of conservatives, uh, 64% of independents, and even half of liberals say they can't always say what they believe anymore because they worried about the social sanctions, the job sanctions, or the negative consequences of stating their opinion in public. This isn't a country founded with the First Amendment, founded with by individualists who believe that we all should reach the best possible result by having the most open debate possible. And so I think this election was fought on several levels, and lots of people voted the way they did for different reasons. But the one that's not Spent enough time on is this was a war about the woke cancel culture, and I think a lot of people rose up in silent resistance uh, at the ballot box against it.
0: I know exactly the poll that you're talking about. It was um, put in the field by Emily Eakins, who yeah. was uh, a guest on uh, the Atlas Society asks about uh, three or four weeks ago. So for those of you who uh, didn't catch that interview with her, I recommend that you go and. Uh, check it out, and uh, as John says, this is a primary issue right now, free speech, uh, which is not just about what government might be doing to censor um, our ability to express ourselves, but also the other chilling effects. I mean, political correctness, cancel culture is certainly at least a side door to censorship. Um, So John, one of the other questions, and and you guys watching, please. put your questions in there because this is a really unique opportunity. Uh, You said when we were just kind of chatting and doing our mic check, you said that another surprise for you or at least surprise maybe more to the left was that this was not the blue wave that so many were predicting.
1: No, and their disappointment on Twitter and in their chat rooms and uh, other social media is palpable. Um, Basically the progressive left was told once again, as they were when Hillary Clinton bulldozed over Bernie Sanders in 2016, once again, the progressive left was told this spring, we can't have Bernie Sanders. We can't have Elizabeth Warren. They're too um, image dangerous for us. So we have to go with a good old slow Joe and uh, he may not be exciting, and he may have been a moderate for much of his career, but he'll do because he'll put people to sleep and that's all we need to get people to get rid of Donald Trump because he's so incendiary. Well, Slow Joe may have been the best of a bad choice for the Democrats, but that's not what the debate is right now. Now they're dealing with a 78-year-old failing, fading, uh, candidate who, if he becomes president, will have zero mandate, will have the Republicans in control of the Senate, fewer Democrats in the House, an incipient revolt against Nancy Pelosi by her members who chafe under her iron rule, and zero chance of passing the enormous tax increases that he promised, zero chance of ending the filibuster, zero chance of packing the Supreme Court, zero chance of a regulatory um, reworking of our country's economy, Uh, zero chance of anything that the progressive left had high on their agenda. And of course, identity politics was on the ballot and identity politics lost. Because remember, one of the things that the left has to explain and they can't is for all of Donald Trump's faults, and they are many, he did significantly better, measurably better in the exit polls with black men, black women, Hispanic men, Hispanic women, LGBTQ, and Asians, and even white women. So at some point you have to ask yourself, what in the world is wrong with wokeism if the people are supposed to be woke, won't wake? And in <laughs> fact, you even have reporters at the New York Times saying, well, you know, the biggest problem we have with white supremacy is a lot of people who practice it aren't even white. I mean, that's how much cloud cuckoo land they're about to go into in their internal debates.
0: Uh, Well, that will be fun to watch. Okay, I'm anticipating some of the questions, but we got a good question here from Roger Hoffman. Hey, Roger, Uh, he says he just received an email from Trump campaign uh, a few hours ago in which they stated there is still a good chance for Trump to win this. Um, The campaign was specific on how this could be achieved. I don't even know, you know, if it's it it is going to be what it is going to be. But but John, I, you were saying you see a path, but it's a, a narrow one at this point. It's always been a narrow one, but
1: no, I uh, I said Donald Trump had a thirty-five percent chance of winning re-election a few days ago, and I'm still there now. Uh, it's difficult. I think Arizona is not a done deal. Uh, Wisconsin is a much harder slog. Uh, Michigan has been called for Biden by a couple of people. Pennsylvania has well over a million ballots uncounted, although probably most of them lean towards uh, Biden. And then you have Nevada, uh, which is very close, but of course has laws that are incredibly tilted towards election fraud. And that makes it very perilous there. Um, More importantly than um, what the Trump campaign says is, is that we need to preserve the integrity of the election, not just for this race, but for future use. Uh, The Democrats were going to, if they had a blue wave and took over the Senate, the House, and the presidency, were going to federalize elections and basically uh, cement the kind of uh, outrageous changes that they were making in mail-in ballots and getting rid of safeguards on election integrity in all 50 states. That has been temporarily stopped, but I think this is a wake-up call and a warning call that one of the things conservatives, libertarians, and objectivists haven't done enough of is pay attention to the processes of an election as much as they do the results of an election. The rules of an election matter. One of the reasons why people are an atlas is because they believe that the rule of law and the rules of the road matter in what the direction of an economy is or a society or public discourse. And... The, the left has hijacked many of our election laws underneath our noses without us paying enough attention. And regardless of who ultimately wins, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump, we need to pay a lot more attention to the future, to the rules of the road and the processes of how elections are conducted. Otherwise we will uh, go down a very dark future at our peril.
0: John, I could not agree with you more. You have been a prophet uh, in terms of talking about this issue which is now top of mind. But when you started talking about this uh, years and years ago, you know, a lot of people were like scratching their heads. Why, why is he focusing on that, this issue of election fraud? If you could tell us a little bit of how did you get started on that? Was it a reporting issue? What made you focus on it originally? And what are you seeing play out right now uh, in terms of potential election interference?
1: Well, I uh, I wanna wait for the specific questions from your members, because I don't wanna get too much in the weeds. I'll simply say for my own purposes, I was in college in California. And as part of a term paper, uh, I was writing a political science class paper on uh, election recounts. And there was one that happened to be in my local neighborhood. So I went down, I was probably the only outside observer beyond the political campaigns who attended every one of the recount sessions. And I witnessed election fraud with my own eyes. During that process, there's nothing like having your eyes opened at the age of 19 on something like that. And people always asked me afterwards, Well, why didn't you report this fraud that you observed to the authorities? And I said, Well, it was the authorities who were in charge of doing it. And very briefly, these were the old uh, cards where you filled in the uh, test result uh, or the ballot result with a pencil. Well, what the people who were doing the recount had was a small piece of pencil underneath their fingernail. And the way they would do the ballot change was they would flick it over a ballot that was voting for someone they didn't like. And they created a double ballot. In other words, somebody who looked as if they had voted twice for the same office. So they weren't adding votes to the candidate. They were subtracting votes from a candidate. And that started me on a long odyssey because Uh, This is the subject that no one wants to talk about. Election officials want to bury their mistakes. Election officials never want to admit that their system is vulnerable to either incompetence, or coercion, or intimidation, or fraud. Uh, Prosecutors hate this because whoever you're going to prosecute for voter fraud, you're going to get half the political community angry at you. And most prosecutors want to climb up the political ladder and not have a whole bunch of people mad at them. And of course, the media, which used to believe these were great stories, lots of Pulitzer Prizes won over voter fraud issues. Now, they've basically accepted Uh, the attitude of the progressive left, that there literally is no voter fraud, even though there are documented cases every year. And many of our cities are so riddled with fraud. It's why our cities are so badly governed because the machine always stamps out the reformers if they try to rise up and uh, change uh, the political process. And they basically do it by stealing elections. And I can give you countless examples from Detroit to St. Louis to Philadelphia. to some of the cities we're talking about in these recounts that we're gonna have in the next few days.
0: All right, we've got a question here from our mutual friend, Freda Levy, uh, who asks, do you think Trump should challenge the victories in Michigan or Wisconsin?
1: Uh, Freda asks, good question. I'm not sure what the word challenge means. Uh, I think we need to insist that the legal process go forward. And the legal process is one that is our friend if it's followed, which is we count the votes, uh, that are legitimately cast. Uh, we put aside, as we already have in uh, the county yesterday, provisional votes in which people hadn't proven that they were registered to vote where they say they were, et cetera. Uh, we examined the mail-in ballots according to the procedures in state law, which is the signatures have to match. They have to come in on time. In Pennsylvania, the ballot has to be inside a secrecy envelope, which is inside the mailing envelope. And then we look at the results And if there's no widespread evidence of fraud or manipulation, uh, we accept those results. And if they are, they should be taken to court because fraud is something that's very important. We all have two civil rights when it comes to voting. We fought a great civil rights struggle in the 1960s to make sure people weren't given uh, artificial barriers and prevented from voting. There were no poll taxes. There are no literacy tests. There are no standing in the polling house door blocking people from voting. We need to extend and, ex- and ex- extend those gains. We passed a Voting Rights Act to help with that. But there's a second civil right that everyone in your audience has, which is not to have your vote canceled out by someone who shouldn't be voting, someone who's dead, someone who's. Uh, not yet eligible to have their rights restored after prison, somebody who's moved out of state, someone who doesn't even exist, someone whose address is a postal box or a a vacant lot. Uh, Your vote is canceled out as much as when it's uh, canceled out by someone conducting a fraudulent or illegal vote as it is if you were some prevented physically from casting your vote uh, in the bad old days of the Jim Crow South.
0: Okay, this is maybe more of a question, but perhaps a a comment. Maybe there's a question in there. Jeff Rembold says the left has been pushing to make our elections like a banana republic. I heard yesterday that Philadelphia was kicking out Republican poll watchers from the polls.
1: Well, they do that every year. That's nothing new. Philadelphia is a cesspool of Uh, Corruption. There have often been times in Philadelphia where there were more people registered to vote than there are adults over the age of 18 counted in the last census. We call that a clue that there's something going on there. Uh, You know, we're we're insulting a banana republic in some of these cities when we say that. uh, Banana republics often are far more transparent and have a media that's far more vigilant about finding voting irregularities than our media was this year. I mean, I, my biggest frustration was the media knows that there's voter fraud out there, but for purely partisan reasons this year, they decided to pretend that there literally was no voter fraud. They constantly harped on voter suppression. Well, Jennifer, I have a newsflash. Uh, the election turnout went up 25 million. We have the highest voter turnout we've had in over a hundred years. And how many complaints have you heard about voter suppression the last 24 hours? Have you heard any? Any? Gee, maybe the media missed part of the story. And that's part of the story about this telecast tonight, which is we have to start thinking more and more independently for ourselves and having more and more outlets that we can depend on, because we can't depend on the pollsters and the commentators and the pundits and the media, because they have gone completely over to wokeism. And even though wokeism was repudiated, I doubt they're going to give that second thought.
0: So um, in terms of the media, the news flash, John, um, how influential do you think that media bias has been, or have we arrived at a place uh, like in the latter days of the Soviet Union, where people look at Pravda and they say, okay, well, what if that says, I know that's not true. Um, how much do the media actually have a thumb on the scales? Are people paying attention to it? Or is it is it kind of influence overblown?
1: For the people who like the message the media is putting out, which is almost a universal message, uh, everyone seems to be happy. Uh, basically, the media reinforces people's prejudices, and that happens on both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, what's what I think the most disturbing aspect of the media this campaign was what happened to Glenn Greenwald. Glenn Greenwald is a man of the left, but he's an honest reporter. He helped expose uh, Edward Snowden's revelations about the privacy violations. Uh, by the National Security Agency and many of our other government agencies. You can argue if they were national security implications. I think what Snowden had to report uh, was important and he paid a price for it. Um, and Greenwald at the British Guardian, which is a very left-wing socialist newspaper, brought all of those revelations to light. And he won a Pulitzer Prize from his liberal colleagues for that. But then when he started questioning the Russian collusion narrative, Uh, which popped up after Hillary's loss as an explanation for why she lost rather than her own failures as a candidate, Uh, he was ostracized. And even though he was bankrolled by $250 million to start a new uh, investigative journalism website called The Intercept four years ago, lo and behold, he had to resign last week because he was censored by by the publication he himself founded. And I think he left, you should go to Substack, which is now one of the best places on the internet for unvarnished, unfiltered, clear news, especially from liberals who have woken up to the dangers of the totalitarian left and read his resignation letter. Um, I think it should, I think there's a potential common cause in the future between free thinking, free spirited people on the right, on the left, in the center and people who just believe in reality-based Journalism.
0: Well, I love that, John. And I think that it is so easy to get magnetized to the negative, to the threats, to the dangers. And of course, we shouldn't stick our heads in the sand. But in order to find a way to move forward with confidence and creativity, it really is also important to see what the possibilities are and, and what we have to be grateful for and strengthen and fortify our sense of agency. Um, Okay, Freda also follows up with the question, are there teams in place, John, for the type, uh, to to do the type of checking that you're talking about?
1: Well, there's, I assume she's speaking of um, the voter fraud or the voter fraud issue. Uh, There's a short-term answer and there's a medium-term answer. The short-term answer is I think the Trump campaign is well lawyered up. And I think the Republican National Lawyers Association has a lot of volunteer lawyers. And uh, there's a lot of legal talent there. And they've been ready for this for a long time. Having said that, Donald Trump has not done them necessarily favors with his often exaggerated uh, cartoonish uh, depictions of this issue. Uh, You know, I am reality based. And when Donald Trump sends out a tweet on this issue, half of me is pleased that it's giving it oxygen. And the other half says, why can't he get his facts right? Uh, Because he often doesn't. Uh, so in the short term, I think the Trump campaign is in pretty good shape. Going forward, you know, the left spent something like $300 million on efforts to, you know, promote everything from documentaries featuring Stacey Abrams to claiming falsely that there was voters, voter, organized voter suppression effort in this country uh, to um, basically trying to knock down election laws that had been in place for decades so that they could fraud could be or uh, confusion could be more easily uh, generated. So the the right has no infrastructure on that. Outside of the Public Interest Legal Foundation, Judicial Watch, and a couple of other places, the, the right has almost nothing in this subject, and we are we suffered from it. And the lesson of this election should be If you don't want this to happen again, because the left is going to ramp up their efforts even more and spend even more money, you have to have at least a proportionate commensurate response on the other side so that rather than being outgunned 50 50 to 1, you're outgunned only 7 or 8 to 1.
0: Okay. Speaking of guns, um, so John has been uh, on the many, many happy hours that I've been hosting since March for my friends and for some of our trustees and some of the top um, supporters of the Atlas Society. And that's been, it's been great because we've been able to be together in a small group and uh, just let our hair down, but also talk a little bit about what's happening in our neck of the woods, because we're all over the country. And John, you know, I was heartbroken to hear about uh, the violence in New York, Um, Matt, you know, Tom asks, will there be riots if either candidate wins? Obviously, uh, we've you've got a lot of businesses in New York, a lot down in Beverly Hills, people boarding up in anticipation of violence. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, almost all of the discussion of violence after the election focused on militias or um, Proud Boys or other people who were going to enter the streets and uh, be you know, bully boys for Donald Trump. Uh, it's been 24 hours and I'm still waiting for that. Um, In Washington and in Los Angeles, I know on Rodeo Drive and in uh, uh, New York, uh, lots of businesses took precautionary measures and boarded up. Uh, There haven't been any uh, incidents of note that I've heard of. And I walked the streets here in New York today. And I would just say, if we calmly let the legal process go forward, the ballots are counted, um, those ballots that have questions are addressed. Uh, We have the courts for complaints. Uh, This will probably take a week, maybe 10 days, maybe a little longer, depending on how close it is. And we'll get through this. Uh, I think that this is a much more resilient country and the extremists uh, who surfaced in May and June after the horrible killing of George Floyd were very opportunistic. And uh, I think that temporarily, It's in no one's interest to see violence this week over the election, especially if the procedures are followed and people feel that everyone is being handled according to the way the law dictates.
0: Beautiful, beautiful answer, John. Um, This is a great question. And well, I wanna also let everybody know we're at 227. John told me that he would be able to give us 30 minutes of his time. I know he has a lot of other um, media interviews booked. So if you have the camp. Okay. so guys, go on just slip in a really great question. Maybe we can entice John to stay with us a little bit longer. But of course, he's always welcome back. Uh, This is actually a, a terrific question from William. With respect to election fraud, Is there a legal route or what are the legal routes, the legal remedies to solving this problem more fundamentally uh, vis-a-vis a a case which could be driven to the Supreme Court possibly uh, where now it might get a more favorable hearing?
1: Our election systems were purposefully designed to be handled at the local level. We're almost unique in the world among industrialized nations in that respect. The basic building block is the county or the city, and then it goes up to the state, and then only then uh, to um, advisory and supervisory roles by the federal government. So I'm in favor of that system. I like a decentralized system. Uh, So the solution, the, the solution ultimately does not come from the top down, it should come from the bottom up. And I think the principles of a free and fair election are pretty clear, which is, if you're going to change elections, like in a COVID crisis, you should recognize there will be unintended consequences. You know, the postal service standards, for example, have been so bad, we're going to learn a lot of ballots are lost in the mail. Uh, We had networks from NBC, CBS, and Fox drop in examples of 100, 200, 300 envelopes that resembled and weighed the same as a ballot, put first-class postage on it, and between 2.5 and 4% never showed up. Well, in 2016, eight states were decided by less than 3% of the vote. So you're playing Russian roulette, even regardless of fraud, simply because of the incompetence of the post office. you know, Barack Obama in 2008 famously said when he was telling people to go vote in person, why would you vote by mail? Why would you trust the honesty and integrity of a system like that and give up your secret ballot to boot? That was Barack Obama, 2008. He should know something about this. So the first principle is do as little harm as possible and don't play ideological politics by picking judges who overturn state legislatures as was done in Pennsylvania, uh, changing the laws wholesale at the last minute, trying to manipulate the system in your behalf. You know, you the election law, as much as possible, should be stable and predictable and something people can depend upon. Uh, that's the first point. Uh, the second point is, how in the world is it that even though in statute law and in traditions we have an election day, that suddenly we had only a minority of people vote on election day? I mean, did anyone vote for that? Did anyone agree to that? Uh, It happened overnight almost in the space of a few years because uh, 10, 15 years ago, less than 15% of people voted before election day. Now we'll pass 60 or 65%. We need to ask questions. Why do we have campaigns if 60% of people can vote before the last debate? Why in the world have debates? Why not just line up like robots and vote according to your class struggle membership card? (laughs) I mean, you know, election day should mean something. Right now we have this bizarre system where election month starts right after Labor Day in North Carolina where people can vote. It runs through September and October. Then you have an election day and then you have election month in which, you know, people file lawsuits and argue over in front of judges asking the judges to decide how people voted than having the people decide how people voted. It's a really bizarre shift that we have. And by the way, think about this culturally. Jennifer, everything that you do in your life, you can get faster and better service now than you could 20, 30 years ago, with the exception of elections. You used to wake up the morning after an election, pick up something called a newspaper. I heard they used to exist. And you'd actually read the results. Now we're being conditioned. Oh, we have to wait for days or weeks to decide who came up with that. Why is this the only part of our life in which standards of efficiency and quickness have been completely abandoned? Something is going on here. And we were not consulted.
0: Okay, Atlas Society gremlins. I wanna make sure you get the timestamp on that last question because we absolutely have to meme it. That was a, a brilliant, line up like robots and vo- vote according to your class struggle. Uh, okay, here's a spicy question from Jeff Ganasan. son. Libertarians took down Trump. Why can't they see the fact they cannot win and need to join the Republicans? John, how much of an impact did the Libertarian vote have on this? election
1: well the thing about third party voting that people don't fully appreciate is between a third and 40 percent of people who vote third party wouldn't vote at all if the third party option wasn't on the ballot uh they are contrarian they really don't like either candidate uh famously 19 percent of voters in 2016 hated both hillary and trump yet they still made a decision um I think it's not a productive use of time and energy to tell people who hate both major parties. And by the way, what law is it that we're supposed to only have two major parties? Uh, It's an unfortunate regulatory duopoly we have artificially created by the state. Uh, I think it's not a particularly productive use of someone's time to go hector people as to why they won't fall in line between one party and the other. You know, the left did an awful lot of that after Ralph Nader in 2000 was blamed for costing Al Gore Florida. Uh, The Green Party is still on the ballot. It doesn't get many votes. It doesn't affect many results. But does anyone really believe that a Green Party member who believes that the Democrats are only paying lip service to the Green New Deal or they don't really mean it doesn't have a legitimate point? One of the advantages that third parties have is if they have a legitimate point and they start picking up support, the major parties should pay attention. They shouldn't swap them down and try to kill them. They should say, what is your grievance and what are we doing that isn't addressing your concern? And you know what? Gary Johnson got 3.3% of the vote as the libertarian candidate in 2016. Joe Jorgensen, the candidate this time, got about 1%. That means that about 75% or more of people who voted libertarian in 2016 voted probably for Donald Trump or didn't vote at all this time. And that's the news, not the infinitesimal less than 1% of the vote that still votes third party. It's still a free country. You're going to get people who vote for third party. If the libertarians vanished, it would be there'd be a constitution party. If the green party vanished, there'd be a socialist workers party. So I think that the emphasis there is... On the wrong part of the equation. It's not why is there a libertarian or a green party. It's why are there people who are dissatisfied with the two major parties that feel that there should be one.
0: Well, that's a really good. That's a really good point. Um, I don't know whether or not uh, the um, the people who voted Libertarian Party last election and didn't vote Libertarian Party this election whether they voted for Donald uh, Trump. We know a couple that voted for. Joe Biden, which makes no sense
1: to me. Well, just remember, there are people who believed, whether it was true or not, that Donald Trump has incipient authoritarian tendencies. And I can tell you right now, we will never know the answer to that question. But from all the data I've ever looked at, I will tell you um, what I think usually happens with a libertarian vote that's measurable. About 30 to 40% of those people would not have voted at all. About 40% or so would probably have voted Republican. And somewhere between 15 and 20% would have voted either for a Green Party candidate, a Democrat, or just some crazy independent like Jesse Ventura, who was trying to upset the establishment apple cart. So no one knows the answer to that, but I can guarantee you one thing. You cannot look at 1,000 libertarian individuals who voted in an election and assume that all of them would have lined up like robots and been in front, of Donald, in front of Donald Trump's candidacy. It's a lot more complicated than that. So I think that we're focusing on, we need to focus on other issues involving a whole lot more people than the less than 1% that the questioner is raising.
0: Well said. All right, let's see if we can squeeze in uh, a couple of other questions. Anthony Mann uh, says, hi, can any of you lovely people how- tell me how many total votes were cast so far?
1: We don't, I know. I don't know.
0: We're counting.
1: We're counting. In fact, that's Mm -hmm. part of the problem that there's so many mail-in votes that are in the pipeline, we don't know. We do know that more people voted than in 2016. The best guess is we had about 138 million people vote in 2016, we're probably gonna go over 160 million this time. And um, that will be a record, largest turnout since 1900. And uh, that shows you how many passions and how important a lot of people thought this election was.
0: That's beautiful. Okay. Uh, last question. Vicky says, um, seems like right now that neither side will consider this election legitimate. How do we turn this around so people can trust in future elections?
1: Well, a lot of people told pollsters before the election that they were worried about the election not being legitimate, or they were concerned about the freedom and fairness of it. Um, the exit polls don't pick up any of that this time. Most people think that they had their say, that they were able to vote. Uh, there are exceptions, we're discussing some of them in this broadcast uh, webinar. Um, there's certainly concerns about manipulation, coercion, fraud, and bureaucratic bungling. Uh, but I will have to say this as someone who's paid as to find uh, problems in our society, there are a lot fewer complaints and arguments about this election than a lot of people expected. And I referenced one of them earlier uh, about all this voter suppression we were worried about. I'm still waiting for any examples.
0: Well, John, I mean, couldn't you say say to an extent that where there seems to be a lopsided calling elections early for one candidate or the other, it's not suppression by a party, it's not suppression by a government, unless you think it's MSDNC. Um, that there is a certain suppressing effect of that. Um, you know, Jennifer,
1: it, it was a whole lot worse in previous years. Um, the polling industry had a second epic failure, and we need to dissect that. Well, I and, wanna,
0: yeah, look, I want to talk. I can't you go without talking Emily, about that.
1: Emily was on a, another webinar for another group today, uh, I think, addressing that very well. But when it comes to the calling of states by media outlets... They were relatively restrained this year. Arizona was called by Fox. Yeah, uh, No one else chose to follow them except the Associated Press hours later. Um, Michigan was only called by CNN, I think a couple hours ago. Um, remember the polls pretty much had closed almost everywhere by the time that Arizona call came in. So if the polls are closed everywhere, I don't think you can call that voter suppression because the polls are closed. <laughs>
0: Okay. Um so why do pollsters get it so wrong? And what as in your especially your 30 years of, of looking at this more than that, why uh have polls become so unreliable? You mean and is this just sort continue, of a recent phenomenon mean, or do you think that's to be uh,
1: so unreliable? Okay. Uh, this is a hard question to unpack. Um And I'm going to forget a few things, but let me go over three or four elements. First of all, we expect too much of polls. There are two words that people who report on the polls as a substitute for actually reporting on a story or actual voters like to put down way in the bottom of the story. Margin of error. All polls have it. None of them emphasize it. Even the best polls have a margin of error of about 3%. That means if it's a close race, the variation can be quite vast. Now, nationally, the polls got Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump pretty much on spot in 2016. The state-level polls, where it's a lot harder to get a sample uh, that's accurate and that's within a reasonable margin of error, was a lot harder. They messed up badly on that. Uh, more specifically to your question, I think it's a tug to the cultural left. There's O'Sullivan's law named after John O'Sullivan, which is every institution in our society will gradually tug to the left unless a steering wheel is held firmly. The steering wheel is held firmly and going in the straight right direction. All media will revert to the left, unless it's like C-SPAN, which has, it makes a religion of being boring and fair. Uh, And C-SPAN still is boring and fair, but that's an exception. And that's not based on, you know, market imperatives for them. So over time, pollsters have tended to frame their questions and their premises for those questions. This is the Atlas meeting. Premises are very important. They frame their premises more and more towards the left and ask fewer and fewer questions like, you know. It took many, many years for pollsters to start asking the following question. Um, Are you concerned that too much illegal immigration, by the way, you were no longer even able to use that word because that was politically incorrect. Are you concerned that too much illegal immigration might be depressing the wage rates of Native Americans? Now, you can argue about that validity of that question. You can argue about whether or not it's accurate. But it's a legitimate question to ask. But pollsters weren't asking it. So increasingly, what you found is pollsters were making up the questions for the benefit of their colleagues and their media brethren, rather than for actually figuring out what reality was. Now, private political polling tends to be more accurate because it's for a paying client. So when Republicans And Democrats pay good money for polling. It's because they want to ask the questions they think actually will help them understand the electorate, rather than what uh, might titillate or please the CNN, MSNBC audience. So you've got a, a market failure there between the public polling and the private polling. And lastly, with polling, as the media's credibility and objectivity is increasingly called into question, most polls have a media partner so polls are viewed as part and parcel of the media they're tied together so if cnn loses credibility how much credibility is there in cnn's poll even though it might not actually be infected as much by the bias of the major network it's there's a spillover effect so here's what we have we have pollster we have pollsters who are asking people questions and the people they're asking questions don't believe they're fair believe the information could be misused, and it's none of your business. That's why the shy Trump voter was discovered in 2016. The voter who basically didn't want to tell a pollster what they were thinking. And think about this. If 77% of people in that Cato poll, Jennifer, believe that there are negative consequences if they express their genuine opinion, if a perfect stranger calls them up on the phone and asks them what their private political opinion is, what are the odds they're going to give it to them? So pollsters have discovered that they have to call more and more people to try to get enough people to fill out a survey because people aren't participating anymore. You know, there's the revolt of the masses. There's also the revolt of the individualists. They're not, they're not responding to the bait anymore of these media polls. Therefore, many of them are missing constituencies that would reflect reality if they could capture them. So something has to explain the fact that the polling industry failed epically twice in a row, and it failed to capture the same group of people, the shy Trump voter. Will they wake up? I doubt it, which is why we probably have to start creating our own polls again and start from scratch.
0: So, John, you're in San Francisco now. I mean, you're in, in San Francisco. New York. i from
1: San Francisco. I've never lived in a zip code where anyone agreed with me.
0: <laughs> Neither have I. Uh, you know, I grew up uh, mostly in Massachusetts, and now I'm down in Malibu. And so I'm the only non-Democrat in my family. So I've had a lot well, of practice. So it's of- fun to
1: be different, though.
0: It's in, and, and finding you know, all of the wonderful things uh, that you can talk about in the world and all of the wonderful reasons that to, have, to with- have You know, nothing to do with politics. But you, my family, ended up in San Francisco. You uh, began in San Francisco. Many say that San Francisco is no longer a city that they recognize. And uh, reports are that people are taking their money and leaving. What what has happened there and how did elections become so one-sided in California?
1: Well, that's a much bigger question than we can answer in a short segment. Mm -hmm. I'll just give you a snippet, which is, uh, first of all, every place and every person serves a purpose, even if it's to be a bad example. And San Francisco serves as the ultimate example of a beautiful, culturally rich area that has destroyed itself through political correctness. If you want to see the future we want to avoid, you just go to San Francisco. Um, San Francisco just saw its seventh wall green shut down. Now, the reason it shut down was not rioting. It wasn't um, lack of business. It wasn't COVID. It was shoplifting that the police department refuses to enforce anymore. If it's less than $950, they won't make any felony charges. So organized gangs of people clear out the Walgreens and make it impossible for them to do business. They're shutting down. The latest one is in a senior neighborhood. I don't know where those seniors are going to go. You want to talk about food deserts? Uh, Our failure to enforce the rule of law in San Francisco is leading to food deserts, and seniors are suffering as a result. So the problem with San Francisco is, and this is actually a very, this is where I actually put on my populist sort of almost liberal hat, which is, you know, the liberals always used to warn against a stratified cloud-like society, where there'd be people up in the clouds and there'd be people down in the teeming, you know, lowlands. Well, Brazil is like that. You know, Brazil has many wonderful things, but it's an incredibly unequal society. There's a middle class, but there's a thin crust of politically connected, uh, wealthy people who often derive their, gov- their income from government or go- parastatals. And then there's the teeming favelas and the slums. And it's not a place you would want to necessarily live if you didn't have a lot of money. We in America created something different, the broad middle class, where you could aspire to climb up the ladder and to have a better life for you and your children. Well, San Francisco is our Brazil now. If you are very rich in San Francisco, and you could live on the top floors of a penthouse apartment building, or behind a gated community, and I have friends in San Francisco who do this, you could live very, very well, and you can ignore the rest of society, which is sad. But just outside your door are the teeming, mentally ill, drug-addled homeless that no one is paying attention to, and no one is trying to help. The irony is the paternalistic liberalism that charles murray worried about a long time ago in which a lot of people are basically put on soma and welfare and they're put away and everyone ignores them while everyone pursues their high-minded artistic and woke you know cultural sentiments that's the danger of a place like san francisco so the irony is the people who claim to care for all of us are actually and i use this word carefully in an atlas meeting some of the most self-absorbed, selfish people I've ever met. And selfish in the sense was there's nothing wrong with being selfish, but you want a society that works for as many people as possible while you pursue your aspirations. What the left has is we don't care what happens to a lot of people give them drugs and give them welfare, and we'll be fine on the top of our pyramid. That is not the kind of America that our founders built, but that's the kind ultimately of society that political progressivism and political correctness leads to.
0: Well, John, I would say having spent most of the last seven months in San Francisco, uh, went up there with a car full of toilet paper for my elderly parents, and the amount of deterioration that I saw just in that short ap- amount of time, and I've, I've written about this uh, in my article, Vagrants in our driveway, a teachable moment, that isolation, I mean, unless, e- even if you were to go about in a like a, a, a limousine or whatever, you, you cannot walk down the street um, without being confronted with With the consequences, but uh, I agree that. The but they're not of-
1: changing their political views.
0: They' no, they're not. They're, they're, re- they're not. isolated
1: physically, but they're isolating themselves mentally. They're choosing not to see it. They're choosing to be blind and about how this happened and what the causes were.
0: right. Well, as I quoted Ayn Rand in that article, uh, you know, man is uh, is free to unfocus, you know, his mind. And avoid seeing what is in front of him, but he is not free to avoid the consequences of choosing not to see. I'm going to let you go, but we have a question from one of our trustees uh, who just joined us. Well, actually he's been here, uh, John Laura, And I promise I'll promise to let you go after this, uh, John Fund. John Laura wants to know: can the Supreme Court be relevant in overturning fraudulent results?
1: Well there was a four to four vote about 10 days ago on the Pennsylvania election changes. And in a four to four vote, the lower court ruling holds, it doesn't change. Since then, Amy Comey Barrett has joined the court. If Pennsylvania is not the decisive state, in other words, if the um, outcome of the presidential election doesn't hinge on what happens in Pennsylvania, The Supreme Court will try to, I think, avoid this issue because it will not be decisive. They weren't able to do that in Florida in 2000 because Florida was the decisive state. So if it turns out that, for example, Donald Trump ultimately prevails in Arizona, Michigan is still called into question, uh, Nevada is even up for grabs, and it comes down to Pennsylvania, the court will have a very, very awkward position to negotiate, which is the Pennsylvania Supreme Court will clearly have acted against letter law in creating this awful situation. It wasn't resolved before the election. If those ballots mailed between Tuesday night and Friday night that are still in the mail as we speak, if they prove to be decisive, the Supreme Court is going to have a very, very difficult decision to make, especially its newest member, Amy Comey Barrett, because she may be the deciding vote
0: well thank you very much john you gave us as always double you, you went above and beyond i know you were completely exhausted but um this has been just so wonderful i'm so grateful to you for joining us i'm so grateful to everyone who joined us on this webinar i'm grateful to you uh, freda to you john alia lauro um, and i am also grateful to you jay Lapere. he is going to be our guest next week
1: on the- And Jennifer, if I can just say one final thing. Um, A lot of people were fairly brave or courageous or just generous in stepping up and supporting groups like yours over the years and especially Atlas. And often I suspect they felt that it was, um, you know, part of a a losing cause or a cause that wasn't going to make a lot of progress. Um, One of the things this election proved is there is a silent majority or near majority out there and even though you may not hear from them you may not witness them you may only glimpse them once every 4 years uh, through a gla- through a glass uh lit darkly on election day they do exist your message does get out even though you may never hear from a lot of people frederick bastier the famous economist talked about the seen and the unseen in economics was the most misunderstood principle we could We in economics, we often see the consequences of a certain policy. We see the fact that uh, if we have free trade or free exchange, um, that there are victims, there are people who don't lose out. Uh, We don't often see the unintended consequences if we restrict trade or exchange. Uh, We don't see the jobs that aren't created, the innovation that doesn't take place, the individuals whose idea is muzzled and they can't find financing or support for it. Well, think tanks and nonprofits are very much like that. The seen and the unseen, you're investing in the future, believing that there's an unseen payoff down the road and you may never fully realize it. But I will tell your audience and your donors right now, this last 24 hours, against the expectations of the pundits, the pollsters, and the, um, the politicians, there was another wo- chapter in the culture war. People did fight back. These last 24 hours in ways that were unexpected and with results we are still surprised at. And in part that's due to the efforts of groups like Atlas and others, so the investment may not always be clear the path forward might not obviously be obvious, but there are a few times when you can see it makes a difference, we just saw one of those these last 24 hours.
0: Thank you very much, John. Um, And and thank you for all of you guys who have supported us, not just over the past 30 years, but particularly uh, over the past several years. I absolutely know that our messaging, what we are doing, the creative way that we are doing it with our graphic novels, with our Draw My Life videos, with the themes of envy, greed, the desire for the unearned, uh, resentment, victimhood, and yes, Yes, our ceaseless messaging against uh, socialism and defending the moral foundations of capitalism. Uh, We will do it. We don't care who tries to cancel us. We don't care who doesn't like us, (laughs) objectivists, non-objectivists, whatever. We're we're not going to stop. And you do have a unique opportunity right now, thanks to our board who will be double matching all new donations and all increased donations from now to the end of the year. So thank you in advance. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Come out to Malibu. You need some R&R and otherwise I will see you back online very soon.